our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we commit this service to you, the remainder of the time that we have. We pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit, an anointing that would reveal truth and help me speak truth well, an anointing that would help us all hear truth well, because we are moving to a place where um, not only are you perfecting that which you began in us, not only are you keeping your promise to preserve and protect everything we commit to you, but you are doing a work of refinement and excellence in us as we understand that what an honor it is for us to be called to this present generation, to live in this present time. My devotion this morning, we had been reading through um, the book of Esther, and there's a little piece of wisdom that we're all familiar with. He said, God can do something this way. Mordecai did, said, God can do something this way or that way, but who knows? Or in other words, it seems that God has brought you, Esther, to the kingdom for such a time as this, for just this moment. Every one of us are here for just this moment, from the youngest of us to the oldest. So we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit today as we talk about crafting our response, crafting our response to the Holy Spirit. Be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's so much we could talk about when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit um, and we, we, we intend to cover what it means when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm afraid that so many of us that were raised in Pentecost, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something we were to pursue. I mean, and we should, and to chase down. But it became more like a quest for a merit badge than it did for the vitality and the living relationship of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I don't say that to be critical. I think that was the natural assumption from um, the way the church viewed a lot of times that this was the Spirit was to come upon you and you had to be a welcome receiver for it to come upon you. And, you know, a, when a plane takes off, if it's even a half degree off course, that makes no difference at the airport where it takes off. But the longer it flies, the more it deviates from the correct path. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit in his wisdom is calling us to a course correction. It's not major. It's not that we've walked in error. It's not that we've walked in sin. I don't even think it's that we've done anything wrong. It's just I don't know that we have adequately embraced the glory of the Spirit-filled life. Uh, it's been reduced to a war between signs and evidences and experiences. And it's hard, it's hard 
to kiss your sweetheart when you're involved in a fist fight. It really is. And that's what has happened to the church. We're fighting uh, theological presuppositions. We're fighting denominations. We're fighting each other when we need to be drawing close to the one we love. And I want to just address this idea today of crafting our response to the Holy Spirit. Now, how we respond to God is so very important. You, you may not know this, but there was a time, you don't hear much about it now because we've said, well, this is just what we think. This is what we believe. And I don't think it's wrong. But there was a time that we weren't even sure how to pronounce the name of God. Now we say, oh, this is Yahweh. This is the holy name, Yahweh. But there was a time when Christian scholars and even Jewish scholars were unsure of how to pronounce God's formal name because it was held in such reverence that they often would not say it or they would substitute a lesser name lest they take his name in vain. And I remember sitting in seminary class one day um, when one of the most godly men and greatest Hebrew scholars I've ever known uh, talked about, we believe his name is this. But you know, Hebrew is sometimes written without the vowels. He said, it could be this, it could be this. We're pretty sure it's this. And he gave the reasons. But I thought in an attempt to so honor the name of God, they lost for a few generations the idea of how to even say his name. Do you know that uh, the, the scholars that gave us the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, they were so... Uh, diligent about the name of God that whenever they wanted to be sure that's why the Masoretic text is so of the Old Testament is so important because of the care and the precision the care and the precision hey you know how frustrating it is when you try to send a voice text to somebody and you ended up inviting them to a death watch instead of inviting them to lunch you know uh, all kinds of things um they were so careful that when they would write a line, they would measure the, the original. This is how many lines there are. Then they would go across. And of course, they read from right to left. And they would mark down how many letters were on the page. And if they provided the, the, the vowels, they would provide how many consonants, how many vowels. I mean, it was precise. And they checked every line. They checked every letter. And they were so particular about the, the name of God. Th this is why we should be understanding of how important the, the third commandment is. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. They were so particular about the, when they wrote the name of God, no matter how many lines they had written, if it had been three, four, five, half dozen lines, or if they had just written one word, whenever after writing the name of God, when they came to the name of God, they would lay the old pen aside. They would collect a new pen out of a special batch of pens, which were basically cut from wood, you know, and they dip in ink. And they would take a brand new pen to write the name of God. And after they wrote the name of God, they would set that pen aside and it was considered holy to the Lord. And that pen was only used for writing the name of God. There might only be one or two words between the name of God in some passages. But they would put the pen aside, get a new pen to write the name of God. And I, I want to tell you something. 
the children of Israel with all of their problems, that's why we know they are assembly of God probably, is all of their problems, they knew how to honor the name of God. And we, we need to be sure that honoring the name of the Lord and honoring God himself, we need to recover that reverence. We need to be careful that it's true Jesus is our friend and he invites us to intimacy, but he doesn't invite us to presumption. He doesn't invite us to an attitude that we can, he, he hasn't become an old backslapping buddy with us. He is still the holy God. There was a time in Israel's history when certain Israelites, it wasn't every one of them, but certain Israelites, when they would even say the name of God or make a reference to God, they would pause mid-sentence and everybody in the room would say something like this, may his holy name be praised forever. In other words, if we were saying on the, the sixth day God created man, we would say on the sixth day, God, may his holy name be reverence forever, created man. That's how, that's how important it was to have the right relationship. So that's why this story, which is about a third of the sermon today, might seem um, a little tedious, but I want you to know God <clears throat> taught me a life-changing thing. When I was a young pastor, I was... <clears throat> excuse me, a sophomore in, in Bible college. And I had received a great honor. It was home for the summer. And I had received a great honor to lead prayer. Uh, and then I was also, as a, as a young minister that they wanted to get used to stuff, I was also allowed to receive an offering uh, at camp and camp meeting, which was a week long. And I was, I was just amazed. And um, when I, I forget which I did first, the offering or prayer, but I, I was very nervous because these are people that had forgotten more about ministry and praying than I knew as a 19 year old. And um, I was very nervous. And on top of that, our guest, the guest speaker was the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. Uh, it, it, his name was Thomas Zimmerman. Some of you may remember that. He was he was a uh, uh, superintendent for 25 years and is viewed as the, well, it's a secular term. He was viewed as the Bismarck of the Assemblies of God. Uh, and Bismarck was the one that united all the German kingdoms into one mighty nation. And it was said that Brother Zimmerman brought us together. We were never considered a denomination. We never considered ourselves a denomination until the organizing hand of Thomas Zimmerman came into leadership. He was a man in high esteem. We couldn't believe we got him to speak at our district council. So he's out there. And I received the offering and it was a dud. I mean, I don't know if the offering was good or bad, but you know, everybody was, you know, quieter than you are today. They just looked at me. Uh, what I said was good, solid biblical truth. And, and, you know, I was used to people shouting where I come from, you know, you could shout over, over somebody coughing, you think they gave a message in tongues, you know, and, and um, I, I'm, I'm not, that's not critical. It was, they were a shouting bunch. I've never been any place where a, a, a denominational setting where they'd sing like we sang in West Florida. I mean, it was, it was some of the most phenomenal worship that I'd ever been a part of. And we were just used to the, I mean, it was high, high level intensity. 
And I got up there and in a matter of 90 seconds had killed everything that had ever drawn a breath of life. And I went down discouraged. And, um, you know, I, the, one of the presbyters could tell I was discouraged. And he said, you all right? And I said, well, I don't feel like I did a good job. He said, you did better than you think you did. I didn't know what he meant by that. He said, you did better than you think you did. And um, then I was coming up on the time, I think it was the offering first, then it was coming up on the time that I was to pray, okay? Now I said, you know, I'm not gonna let this thing bite me twice. I'm gonna watch everybody that goes up there and I'm going to learn what I didn't do and everybody that went up there, I knew them. They'd be talking conversational tone. But when they got up there, every one of them raised their voice to a dramatic sing-songy tone. And it was just, it was a sign of the anointing. We used to have a saying in my home district. Uh, you know, I, I still tell this to Corey when he's preaching. I say, preach with your hair in your eyes, you know. Because if you didn't get your hair down in your eyes, you weren't anointed. You were to preach till your shirt tail came out you know, and you had about three inches of your pants leg underneath your shoes. It was an emotional, physical thing. And that's, you know, I started saying that's, they do that to receive the offering. They do that to pray. They do that to introduce guests. They're one thing here and they are a totally different thing up here. And they, they, I knew these men, they weren't hypocrites. They weren't fakes or phonies. They just realized that something different was needed on the platform than was needed in conversation. So I got up there the next time and I said, oh, hallelujah, it's time for us to pray. And, I, I, I'm, and let me tell you something. My mother's greatest concern for me going into ministry, well, there are a couple of things, but she said, you are not a preacher. You are not a preacher. You are. See, that in those days, there was the backhanded uh, insult that says, well, he's more of a teacher than he is a preacher, which meant he didn't yell enough. He didn't have em enough emotion. And my mother was, I, I remember my grandmother, I preached a revival at her church. And I thought I preached good messages, but at the end of the revival, the pastor said, well, thank you for coming and preaching revival. I'm sorry it wasn't any better than it was. Uh, here's your offering. And I, just, I felt, boy, like I, just a total failure. And th that, was, that was the stuff that I had to deal with. I had to deal with it for years. But this day, you know, I thought I had discovered something. And I got up there and I prayed with fervency and we need to pray with fervency, but it doesn't need to be staged fervency. Nothing wrong with yelling, screaming, getting your hair in your eyes, preaching your shirt tail out. Nothing wrong with any of those things. It's a problem when you stage it. Are you with me? But I remember growing up, I'd ask somebody I was sitting with in church, you know, what, what is that? What, what's he doing? And the answer that I got for years was, well, that's the Holy Spirit. And, you know, somebody might be dancing, might be crying. They might start Jericho marches. They might, any kind of thing. And I believe in all of those things. But I began to realize that that was not the Holy Spirit. That was their reaction to the Holy Spirit. And that's Okay. That, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's a guy that's not a classic Pentecostal preacher being told 
that if you want to be anointed, if you want to be received, if you ever want to be a preacher instead of just a teacher, you've got to play the game. They did not say that, but that's basically what they were saying. And so after that prayer where I, where I, you know, pontificated and I screamed myself almost hoarse and, and people were so proud of the anointed prayer as I walked off, I felt, and, and this is a long story. So I'm, I'm giving you the reader's digest version and it's not as simple as I'm making it. It was layered. It took place over several weeks that turned into months that God dealt with me about this, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit and, and, and my response to the Holy Spirit. And um, as I was walking off the platform feeling victorious, I felt the Lord speak to my spirit. It was very gentle. It was not a rebuke. It was, it was not harsh, but it was... I felt that I had grieved him and he spoke very gently to me and I felt the Holy Spirit say, I don't ever want you to do that again. Now, again, I didn't feel rebuked. I did. I, I, in fact, it's, it's a very rare situation when I felt the Lord speak in that tone. It's only happened a very few times, but he said, I don't ever want you to do that again. And again, I'm making a long story shorter, but I sat through the service asking God to help me understand what he meant. I didn't know if he didn't want me leading. I, I didn't know. I, you know, you don't want me to lead prayer. You know, he said, I don't ever want you to make room for a false anointing. I don't ever want you to make room for false volume. He said, I don't ever want you to be guilty of manipulating people and call that a Holy Spirit response. And the concern that I felt was, he says, there's a lot at stake here. Um, I remember during the course of working through this, I said, Lord, brother so-and-so, I, I won't say his name. He's he got such a place of honor in my life. I said, brother so-and-so does that. I said, he's very quiet and subdued, but when he gets on the platform, he... Uh, or I thought he was quiet and subdued. I said, but when he gets on the platform and the Lord spoke to me and said, yes, brother so-and-so talks to his wife like that too. That's him. That's his personality. I found out later it, it would be, it would be like, uh, um, it'd be like Rachel calling her husband, brother Farrell. You know, that's, that's the kind of relationship they had. You know, I remember her one time giving a testimony, said, we were, we were laying in bed the other night and I said, Brother Farrell, I mean, using Mike as the example, and I, I was an unmarried kid and I thought, yeah, Brother Farrell, my hind leg, you know, uh, but that, they were just that formal and there was, that, that was the culture I was raised in. And as I began to try to work through this, the Lord had told me, you can always, you, you, you don't be something you're not because then you've got to worry about two battles. There's one fella that would, would, his voice would go up two octaves. He was a great guy. I went to preach at his church. His voice would go up two octaves and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it in that, in that neo-Pentecostal voice. He stepped up to the platform after talking to me very casually. And he said, folks, I want everybody in the building to stand to your hands and lift your feet and let's worship the Lord. And I, everybody knew what he meant, but I, I lost it. 
I lost it. And the lady behind me, I was shaking. I was laughing so hard. And the lady behind me, I heard her just pray for me, bless him, Jesus. Bless him, Jesus. And because that's what they would pray for me when I wasn't Pentecostal enough. Bless him, Jesus. And I, I appreciated it. I said, yes, Lord, do bless me. Help me. I'm bogged down here. But the Lord said, your concern is to never grieve or quench or disobey. Again, this is a condensation of several weeks. And he said, you don't have to be a performer. I want you to be a prophet. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. I want you to be an anointed pastor. And um, that began to set me free. You know, I, I preached at my grandmother's church I told you about. And after the week, I, I, I was so defeated. I felt like I'd preached the heart of God. And um, she said, you know, and my grandmother's a godly woman, amazingly so. But she said, Here's, let me give you a little bit of advice. She said, and she said, if you could just get, if you could get, to where when you laid hands on everybody, they were always healed of everything that was wrong with them. That's what you need to get like. And I, I remember thinking, how do I get like that? Because everything was about performance. I, and, and my grandmother went to her grave, you know, loving Jesus. But if you were in ministry, you had to, to have this performance. I came home from seminary growing a beard one time. And my daddy, I mean, I'm a grown man. My, and my daddy says, I want that shaved off by in the morning. And my daddy was not that kind of person. I said, why? And he said, you're a preacher. I don't want you to have a beard. I said, daddy, Randall, my brother, has a beard. That don't matter. He's not a preacher. Uh, I, I, and so I appealed. I said, Daddy, Jesus had a beard. That don't matter. He's Jesus. I, I went and got my Assembly of God history book, and I opened to the page of the founding fathers, and there were probably a dozen and a half men, and I think all of them except one had a beard. He said, that don't matter. They're, they're, they're dead now. You know? And um, I realized, you know, my, my daddy, he probably couldn't make me shave it off. But that's out of, out of respect to him. I didn't want that to be a wedge between my daddy. So I shaved it off and I, I, I got really ticked about it because I wanted a beard. And he told me that that's not what preachers do. And uh, I, we, we ended up going to church one night and the guest, guest speaker had a beard. And my dad, I, I said, Daddy, he's got a beard. And I could tell it kind of made him mad. He said, you don't see me listening to him either, though, do you? <laughs> Well, God took that period of time, and it, before I settled it, it took years. It took years. I was married and had been, you know, with Ramona for several years before I finally got this settled. The Lord brought me to this place, um, and it began when I said, Lord, I, I, I said, this was, I was still in college. I said, i I don't know what to do with this. You've told me what not to do, but I don't know. I've been raised in a system. That's how you do it. I said, help me to know what to do 
I think I got down pat what not to do. What do I do? And the Lord said, I'm calling you aside for several days of prayer. He had never done that before. And, and he said, I'm calling you aside for several days of prayer. And I will tell you what I want you to do. And loved ones, from the beginning of that prayer time to the end of it, days later, he focused on one thing. He said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not disobey the Holy Spirit. And he took me through places in scripture. He took me through stories. He taught me there that Samson, few people operated under the power of the Holy Spirit like he did. But he had such a deficit of what I was talking about that when the day came that his power left him, he didn't even know that the life force of the Spirit had left him. He took me to the story of Ezekiel and the departure of the Spirit from the temple because of Israel's sin. He took me to the cross, uh, or, or the, just before the cross, where Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that have uh, stoned the prophets and have rejected her, I've wanted you to come unto me so that I might protect you and shelter you, put my wings over you like um, a hen protects her young, but you were not willing. He took me to Psalm 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He took me to Acts chapter 7, where we're going to go in a few minutes, and Peter said, or uh, Stephen said, You stiff necked, uncircumcised in heart and ear, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. And he took me on a several day journey. Um, uh, now, I don't want to mislead you. It wasn't that I was in prayer for several days in a row, but special prayer time every day for several days. And he said, it, it all summed up in this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not disobey the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think the disobey was the word resist. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. And um, he, he drilled that into me. And you say, well, I bet you were fine after that. No, I fought the same old battles. I, I, guys, I want you to know the first, the first three or four church. in fact, until I came here, the common complaint from at least a group of people is that he can't preach. He can teach, but he can't preach. The head deacon came to me in one church and said, I know you're new and you're just trying to make everybody happy. So you're preaching these little, little sissy uh, Christian sermons. But when you start really preaching, he said, let me give you some advice. And I thought, this, this is not, this is the best I have got. This is what I am. And he ended up leaving the church. And so I want to tell you, this was something that kept hitting me in the head for years. And um, I finally, and it was not long before, you know, I came here, I, I came to peace with it. And I, I said, God did not give me this gift. I'm not going to manipulate. I'll preach. I'll do this. And the only one I have to please is the Lord. Now, I'm telling you that because you never gave me that kind of grief. You never, now, there are people that have left the church that, um, you know, I, I don't understand the phrase, can't preach his way out of a wet paper sack. What in the world would I be doing in a wet paper sack? 
But anyway, I, that's a, from my generation. I knew what he was saying. But loved ones, I want to give you an encapsulation of what God taught me. Not that I mastered it. Not that I have not failed. I have failed more times than I would care to, to enumerate. And there are things I'm so ashamed of when I handle something carnally in, instead of spiritually. But Jesus said to the disciples, now don't, don't worry, I know I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through even though we're not even on the scripture yet. He said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at present time. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take from me or from mine and disclose it to you. We are so dependent on the Holy Spirit. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. After a little while, the world is no longer going to see me, but you are going to see me because I live, you also will live. Now, I want us to go to Acts 6. It is a masterful, here is a, basically a layman that's serving as a volunteer in the church. He's, he's about to be killed. He knows he's about to be killed. And his command of the Old Testament narrative Oh, I, I don't know how many preachers could, could have preached the sermon he did without notes. But uh, it's, it says, and Stephen, now he's, he is being falsely accused. He is being persecuted. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of the land of Israel. And not only was it the Supreme Court, it was wise men, it was holy men, it was men that were considered men of high talent, men like Saul of Tarsus that were part of the Sanhedrin. They, they weren't members of the Sanhedrin. Um, uh, people have wondered if Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin because he held their coats while they uh, stoned uh, 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 Stephen. But one of the requirements to be in the Sanhedrin is that you were married. And as far as we know, Paul was never married, but he had a, a distinct place of honor and he held the coats. And Stephen begins to preach talking about the glory of the law, the glory of Moses, the glory of the temple. And he, he, he glorifies everything that the, the, the people that were persecuting him honored. Um, it says, and Stephen, after he was brought to trial, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So he had wisdom and an anointing of the Holy Spirit. When he spoke, he was speaking by the Spirit. Jesus said, I only do what Father tells me to do. Um, 
Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and came up to him, dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward these witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking against this holy place and the law. And nothing was further from the truth. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council stared at him and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. Then he preached this masterful sermon that time will not permit us to deal with today. But he came to his closing now, usually when the preacher says in conclusion, you, you, know, you know what that means is basically nothing. But sometimes when, when we're at the point in conclusion, we're looking forward, he's going to wrap up everything. He's going to tell me what I need to take away. But he came to his conclusion and he's preaching like a scholar, but his tone shifts. And he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become betrayers and murderers of the righteous one. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were infuriated and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. I've got a picture of uh, Jeremy and I, my oldest son and I standing at the place. That's the traditional site right outside the gate um, where they reportedly stoned Stephen to death. I looked at Jeremy and I said, treat this Stephen better than they treated that Stephen. And he did. He gave me a hug. Um, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, we're, we're, we're not talking about responding to the Spirit as a measure of maturity because we respond to the Spirit from the very earliest days. In fact, I'm going to talk to you in two or three weeks, I don't know, uh, maybe even next week. I want to talk to you about how do we measure maturity uh, now, we know what the marks of spirituality are. I've showed you that in Scripture the, the four marks of spirituality. There are four times in the New Testament where Paul calls someone, uh, calls a group of people, you that are spiritual, and then he describes that. But that's not even what I'm, talk, what I'm talking about. Um, th that's our quest. That's our goal. That's what we're after. But there are three practical ways that you can measure your maturity. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about from the earliest moment, maybe before your first moment as a Christian, till the day you draw your last breath. 
Um, we need to respond to the Spirit. We'll never get to the point that we respond to the Spirit. Gene Edwards wrote a book called A Tale of Three Kings, and there is a passage or a sentence in that book that I put in my journal every month uh, in one place or another. And, and David says this in the book, it's Tale of Three Kings, Saul, David, and Absalom. And David says, when I was young, I was not an Absalom. Now that I am old, I will not be a Saul. So whether you are in the position of an Absalom or a Saul or a David, we need to craft a response to the Holy Spirit that is pleasing to the Lord. Now that's a whole sermon series, and we may spend a couple of weeks talking about that, but not today. What are the typical responses to the Holy Spirit? Number one, the first typical response to the Holy Spirit people have a tendency to resist. That's what Stephen talked about. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. It's the idea of opposing. And loved ones, it's true that this is usually spoken of someone who is not a Christian. It's usually spoken of someone that is not a believer. But I, I want to tell you, we have made church our house instead of his house. And the, and the atmosphere in the average church today, I'm not impugning you, but the atmosphere in the average church today is I will come and I will be entertained. I will be passing judgment on the sermon. I will come and see what tickles my fancy. And if I don't like it, there's a church that I will like. And the glory of God's house is lost. What was it Spurgeon said? He said, one day, instead of being a place where shepherds feed the sheep, one day the church will become, uh, what was it, a theater where clowns entertain the goats. And it's the idea of opposing the move of the, of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I don't know of anybody that really opposes it. Oh yeah, the world is in a heavy resist mode against the things of God. And the Bible tells us, John told us this in his epistles. Uh, even in his gospel, he quoted Jesus saying, there will come a day when there is a man known as the Antichrist. Paul called him the son of perdition. Uh, he will be connected with the abomination of desolation like Daniel spoke of. It'll be like Antiochus Epiphanes did in the intertestamental period where he goes in the holy place making himself, setting himself up as God. He says that was the abomination of desolation. Daniel talked about it, but Paul said, but understand that's going to happen again. The son of perdition is going to set himself up as something that is holy. And it'll be a time that God will treat the people as they treat him. They resist the spirit. And so God delivers them to a reprobate mind that they will believe a lie and be damned. And it's as though God says, you don't believe the truth, then I will treat you the same way. I will make it so you cannot believe the truth. And that's going to be the ministry of Antichrist. And it's going to be a time of confusion. But I want you to know the confusion is because there's been a resistance. 
and opposition to the move of the Spirit. Adrian Rogers used to say, when Antichrist comes, people say, well, I won't do this, I won't do that, I'll do this and I'll do the other. He said, there will be such a spirit that is unleashed. Read the book of Revelation, um, even, even surface, and see how many times something spiritual is released from another dimension to this dimension. It's an act of deception, but in every situation, it's the result of resisting the Holy Spirit. And John went on to say that not only is there an antichrist that is coming, but he said in the world, there are already false teachers of antichrist. I think the church wasted a lot of time in the 70s trying to figure out who the antichrist was because there were so many candidates that seemed to fit the bill. And that goes all the way back to World War II and, and even earlier in some instances. And I don't blame the church for making those mistakes because, you know, they were looking for the return of the Lord and the Lord returns after Antichrist is revealed. Uh, returns to earth. But what they didn't understand is that there are so many people that look like Antichrist and act like Antichrist because they are filled with the spirit of Antichrist. You've known people and you say, oh, it's, I know, I know he's not God. I know she's not God, but it's like being in the presence of God whenever they minister. That's because they're full of the spirit of God. But there are also those that are full of the spirit of the enemy, full of Antichrist. And John said, beware that there's not only a man coming, but there's a spirit, um, I mean, false teachers that are in the world right now. But he said, understand this, they operate because there's a spirit that's already in the world. I, 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 I could make a case from some Bible verses, but I don't have time and I don't want it to be thus saith the Lord. But I sense we are in a time when the spirit of Antichrist has just been unleashed like it never has in our lifetime. And so the first thing, and we need to understand this, don't resist uh, Stephen with his dying breath knowing that he was about to go meet Jesus, said, you've got to understand this. This is what your fathers always did. This is why we're in the mess we're in today. You want to know why the Romans are around us? You want to know why the Greeks were around us before them? You want to know why the Assyrians threatened us? You want to know why the Babylonians and the Persians afflicted us? It's because we resist every voice that God sends he said, your fathers did this. What prophet did you not oppose? You say, well, I thought they really honored the prophets. Yeah, but to be honored as a prophet, you have to die first. You have to get out of the way. Then you get honored. But he said, your fathers resisted them and you are doing the same thing right now. So we need to be careful. I know we could, this, is a, this point is for the world, but loved ones, I want to caution you as a pastor. If my knees would work, I would get down on my knees and beg you. Do not come to church with an attitude of one sitting in judgment. Do not come to church with the attitude of one day, but not today. Don't come to church with the attitude of maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other, but not this. We don't want to be guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. There's a second thing that's usually associated with Christians, but can also be associated with unbelievers. And that is the idea of quenching. 
This is the idea of shutting down. Don't shut down what the Spirit's doing. Now, we've misused that so much. Anytime somebody does something we don't like, we say they're quenching the Spirit. If a pastor doesn't allow anything and everything to happen, you're quenching the Spirit. Um, the, the, you know, all my ministry, um, there's been somebody in the name of Jesus that can speak King James better than I can that accuse the church of quenching the spirit because the church isn't doing something they want done. He says that, but there is a genuine quenching where things are shut down. In fact, Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, don't quench the spirit and don't reject prophecies. He said, it is not an exact science. He said, the Lord is without fail. The Lord is without error, but we're not. And sometimes we don't prophesy well. He said, sometimes um, we don't understand what the Spirit is doing. But he, in other words, in the Chitty Revised Standard Version, Paul says to the Thessalonians, just doubt a little bit of your infallibility and, 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 and give something the time to see what fruit it bears. He says, don't harden your heart. Don't let your soul set. You know, I remember as a little boy, I asked my daddy why the concrete truck had to keep spinning. He said, because the moment the concrete stops spinning, it starts hardening. And he, or it starts, he says it gets a set. And I said, what do you mean gets a set? He says, it starts hardening and it won't be long. It's going to be in that shape forever. He said, the secret is to keep the concrete turning until it's time for the set. Now, there's nothing wrong with the concrete start turning. There's nothing wrong with the concrete making a set as long as it's the set it was intended to, to make. <coughs> and my pastor used that very illustration to teach me. He said, always, don't, don't quench the Holy Spirit. He said, don't resist him. He said, and don't quench him. Let him keep your heart turning until it's time for the set. Don't let your heart set until it's set on faith. Don't let your heart set until it's set on the right things. And loved ones, that's why when the Holy Spirit speaks, you need to not say, I've got to do something about that. That's better than resisting uh, or opposing. But the Lord has brought you to a place for right now. I remember speaking to a man that was in church and he was a good man. I was, I was, I don't even know if I was a teenager yet. And I went up to him. I said, brother, so-and-so I said, I feel like the Lord is, is drawing you to the altar. Everybody knew he was a backslider. He hadn't been to church in a long, long time. And he was just, he started sobbing and he said, I thank you so much for, for, for what you're, you're sharing. He said, I know that you love me. He was an old Sunday school teacher of mine that had fallen out. And he said, but I honestly, and he said, I know I need to come back to God, but I honestly don't feel that now is the time. And I didn't know how to answer that. I, he's older and smarter than me. Maybe it's not the time. And why did God put this on my heart? And one of the old saints had walked up behind me and was listening. And he spoke to my old teacher that was quenching the spirit. And he said, he called him by name and said, don't you let your heart harden. This boy doesn't know how to say it. 
but your heart's going to be hard. And if you don't come tonight, you never know if you're going to ever feel this way again. And he ended up listening to him. He didn't listen to me, but he listened to him, went to the altar and rededicated his life to the Lord. Don't quench the spirit. Don't say now's a good time to go get a cup of coffee. Don't say my bladder is full. You know, what was it? Not full a minute ago. I, I don't know. But we don't want to do as the world does to resist the spirit. We don't want to do as some do to shut down what the spirit is doing. And number three, we don't want to grieve the spirit. Now, grieve is different than quench. Grieve means to drive away or to hold at arm's length. He tells us in Ephesians 4, you have the verse there, chapters 29 and 31. He said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I've told you before, grieve is a love word. It's a love word. Uh, when my car breaks down, I'm not grieved. I'm angry, you know, or frustrated. You know, I, I, I don't grieve over my car, but I grieve over a loved one. I grieve over things that have to do with the Lord. This is a, lo a love word. It's what Jesus was using when he said, Jerusalem, I've wanted to do this, but you were not willing. Lo grieve is the idea of what was happening to the Holy Spirit when he left the temple of God in the book of Ezekiel. Again, we don't have time to deal with it, but he left the holy place and made a couple of stops on the way out. It's like he moves away and then stops to see, you know, to give Israel an opportunity to turn back. I mean, he, 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 was, he was grieved because he loved the people of God and he loved the temple. And it's like the Holy Spirit knows he has to leave, but he stops twice to give Israel one more chance Jim Dobson used to say this. He said about, um, he gave expert advice on how to raise your grand uh, or your uh, teenagers. And this is his excellent advice on raising your teenagers. Get them through it. That was the extent of his advice. Get them through it. And one of the things he said though, he said, whenever your child seems to be hostile and antagonistic, he said, do they allow, or at least are they open to touch? Can you take their hand? Can you put your arm around them? Can you hug them? He said, I found that when my children are open to me, he says, no matter how angry they are, they know instinctively that I love them and they allow a touch. They allow. And he said, I don't mean they'll stay there, but whenever Whenever your child is resistant to your touch, he said, you need to pray for God to bring them past that point so they're not quenching your love for them anymore. And then there's the fourth thing, and that is the idea of welcoming. We, we know we don't want to resist. We know we don't want to quench. We know that we don't want to grieve, but we do want to welcome the Holy Spirit. Now, it, we're, we're out of time. You can read the Christian life lessons for yourself, but I'm going to see if I can introduce you to these in, in 90 seconds. Number one, watch your words. If you're going to be um, responding properly to the Holy Spirit, watch your words. Don't make foolish vows like Jephthah did that resulted in his daughter's life being ruined. Don't, don't speak the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, we need to, there's several ways you can speak the name of the Lord in vain. Number one, you can do it by cursing. 
Number two, you can do it by speaking his name too casually. And number three, you can do it by speaking um, uh, callously. Uh, and we need to, honor, we need to, to that's, that's was behind what Jesus said when he said, let your yes be yes and your nay be nay. He was saying, honor the name of the Lord. And uh, if we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, let's use the name of the Lord and speak of the Lord in a proper way. Number two, pursue, pursue the Jesus model. Lo loved ones, the amazing thing about Jesus is that the Holy Spirit came upon him and did not depart. That's our goal. Uh, John was told when the, you see the Holy Spirit to come up upon someone and not depart, that's Messiah. But loved ones, I think sometimes we misunderstand that. That was a testimony to Jesus, not a rebuke of us. And we focus sometimes on, boy, I grieved the Holy Spirit and he left me. We do not serve a Holy Spirit. That was a testimony to Jesus. There was never a need for the Holy Spirit to withdraw and move in any way. But if we're afraid the Holy Spirit is going to leave us every time we do something wrong, we're going to live basically a spiritless life. He, he, he's not so sensitive that we scare him away. He's not so sensitive that we grieve him away, but he is wanting to live in an environment that welcomes him. And, and I, I think sometimes we, we put ourselves in condemnation. Oh, if I grieve the Holy Spirit, he'll leave me. No, he is a consuming fire. Well, what if I do something I shouldn't do? He's going to burn it out of you. He is a fire breathing dove. He will burn it out of you. I'm thankful he does it. Now, now he can withdraw a sense of his presence. He can withdraw whatever he wants to withdraw, but he doesn't leave us. And the emphasis was that Jesus lived such a life that the spirit never even had to withdraw. Okay. Number three, follow peace, follow peace. Romans 14, 19, 2 Timothy 2, Hebrews 12 talks about pursuing peace Humility and peace are your greatest weapons in your walk with God. Number four, remember that we are ambassadors. That means if you're going to be receiving the spirit properly, you need to, to know the king. An ambassador knows the king so well that he can speak for the king. But you also need to know that the king would bring ambassadors home so they would not soak in the alien culture of the land in which they served. That's why it's important for you to have intimacy with God. If you don't slip back into his presence, if you don't go back into the throne room with the king, you will lose the sensibilities of the kingdom. And just remember, it's our place to, to please him. It's our place to please him. You're not going to be able to please a denomination uh, necessarily. You're not going to be able to please every pastor. You're not going to be able to please every church. You, you, you don't even please yourself all the time. So shift your mindset to where what matters. That doesn't mean you disregard people's feelings. But at the end of the day, my decision has to be that I will please him. I will please him. Father, we do not, the ministry team, if you'll come please, we do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We do not want to quench the Holy Spirit. God forbid that we should resist the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we want to welcome you. I'm asking you in however way you want to do it. I'm asking you to create an experience for these people that love you with all their hearts. Like you created for me. 
where we don't focus on what we don't want to do, but focus on how we should be. Lord, I'm asking you, for some of us it may be a day, for some of us it may be three days, for some of us it may be a week or a month, but we ask you to touch our life and we ask you to bring us to a place where we have new fellowship with the Holy Spirit. New fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name.